is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Great to have you along. And today, just shortly too, catching up with Mick Dorr. He is CBH's Chief Operations Officer, so the state's main grain handler we're talking about. And we're going to have a look at just how much money has been spent over the last 12 months trying to improve the grain supply chain network. A record amount has been spent. It's $348 million, which is roughly what the co-op wants to spend every year for the next 10 years to try and bring that supply chain up to speed so that it can handle really big crops like the one that is uh, coming off the paddocks as I speak to you this afternoon. It's very busy at the moment. We're looking at around about, well, 24 million tonnes coming off. But as we were discussing on the Country Hour yesterday during our special grains feature, uh, no one's going to be surprised if that's more like around the 26 million tonne harvest. So looking at that spend and a bit of an update on where harvest is up to, I think it's around 9 million tonnes that has been um, delivered to CBH at this point anyway. Also today, and just before crossing to the Bureau of Meteorology today, the court has handed down the largest fine in Australian history to a labour hire firm for breaching licensing rules and a real warning to others in the industry. And first, wool prices. Danny Burkett, he's going to go through all the details of the wool market a little later in the hour, but we wanted to kick off with a look at the wool prices today because they fell dramatically at auctions this week with some brokers describing the situation as a bloodbath for the market. According to some measures, wool is now at its cheapest point in more than a decade. Wool broker Marty Moses says there are a lot of factors at play at the moment and all of them are negative. Look, we've seen a, a drop in the EMI, which is a broad indicator of 32 cents down to 12.24, which historically now we're going back into October, November 16, 17 type levels in Australian terms. And alarmingly in US dollar terms has dropped to 8.20 so off 14 cents, but that takes us right back to levels at 2010, I believe. Uh, and, and maybe, yeah, I've, I've just got to do the finer ones. 829 it got to in 2015, and we're right back into 2010 where it dropped below that 820 mark. So the principal underpinning factors here is just the world economies. Uh, suffering under inflation, high interest rates, high energy rates. You know, there's just this long list of negatives, wars between Russia and Ukraine. Um, the UK's in a mess. The whole world's just suffering enormously. So uh, wool is now the, at its cheapest point in US dollar terms for over a decade in 12 years. Yeah, that's that's right. And and that reflects, um, you know, if you think about pressures coming on the, the household expenditure, discretionary spend, people aren't going to go out and spend money on luxury items, which wool is, essentially. The new suit, the new uh, T-shirt for running or, you know, next to skin wear, type garment might just have that last that little bit longer. And, and of course, China are suffering under the um, President Xi's shutdowns of, of whole cities and industries, if you like. And China's uh, the biggest buyer by far of Australian yeah. wool. And so is that having a real impact given we've seen protests and the situation in China really ramping up this week? 
Yeah, absolutely. Even though China is still active, that they're you know in some sectors they they're buying selectively to keep mills running. There's no trading going on, uh, so the trading exporters are very quiet this week. Operating largely for European and Indian orders uh, orders outside of China because the Chinese are just so quiet. There's uh, no confidence there at the moment and as we've seen riots in the streets of you know university students uh, reacting to the shutdowns and, and the impact that's having you're a wool broker uh, wool isn't the most perishable product so are growers starting to hold on to their bales given the markets falling so quickly there's been a couple of realms that we haven't seen for a while which is in the in the height of spring we've had a lot of the country up here in new south wales flood affected so receivables have been below par for a month or two now as people either had shorn and couldn't move the wool off farm or have been landlocked. And that has slowed down receipts. In the last 10 to 12, 14 days, there's been no rain and things are starting to open up a bit and, and receivables are really cranking now, which is a month or two behind our normal peaks in this region. And I suspect that's uh, been right across the, the eastern seaboard. So we're going to get volumes into a, a market where it really probably can't handle it and that that's more alarming now than uh, i think ever because if china doesn't come back in who are our volume buyers these 35 33000 bar offerings go to 45 or 50 then the market's in serious uh, risk of, of falling even further despite you pointing out earlier that wool's almost at its cheapest price in 12 years you think the markets could still have further to fall yeah, look, I think confidence is going to be difficult to reinstall. You know, there, there's some really big things happening all at once in the world, and most of them are negative. There's not a lot of positives there. So we're going to go through a pretty tough time. And I think there's this real balancing act of some people have benefited from COVID and, and the, the season and the war, and others have really hurt. And I think Wool's done rather well over the past, especially the finer end, over the past 18 months to two years. With the exception of crossbreds, of course, which are just cheap, bumbling along the bottom and, and you know, not a lot of hope for a, a big rise coming at any time soon. But, you know, we've seen a massive drop in the the, the record highs we've seen in, in super fine wools. They're now coming back. 17 micron indicators dropped from $26 down to $21.33. So, you know, Five it, bucks. it's a big drop. Yeah. Five bucks in anyone's languages, you know, regardless of where it's coming from, is a big movement. And, you know, state of confusion of do we hang on and wait for a the possible kick that might happen in 2023? You know, or is China just going to plough ahead under President Xi and he will act out his um, plan for COVID management? And will that just get people switching off wool in the manufacturing sector? Because uh, no one's going to take stock at levels, at any level, unless they know they can actually push it through the system and i think you know that's the sort it's hard to get good feedback out of the chinese news agencies but we believe that's what's happening and um you know certainly not the expert there but that's that's a big fundamental pain in the uh the rear for the wool industry and others wool broker marty moses from moses and son wool brokers speaking to warwick long 12 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And a little later this hour, Danny Burkett will be right here and going through that market in detail for you. As you heard, the Eastern market indicator is down 32 cents, closing at 1,224 cents a kilogram clean this week. And here in the West, the Western market indicator down 38 cents to close at 1,370 cents a kilo. Danny will go through that in a lot more detail for you 
uh, just before one o'clock today. 13 past 12. Well, the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, has spent a record $348 million on the supply chain network during the last 12 months to the end of September. The money has been spent in three main areas. So there's expand and enhance, sustaining capital and maintenance. Mick Dore is CBH's Chief Operations Officer. Mick, where has the bulk of the $348 million been spent over the last year? Yeah, so it's probably across three main areas, uh, that $348 million. 157 is on our expand and enhance in the network and you know, three of our major site expansions this year at Kadoo, Dumbayong and Shark Lake uh, added close to 300,000 tonne of extra storage at those those three sites. In addition to that, we had the 2.4 million tonne of temporary storage that we put in place to handle, you know, last year's uh, large crop. 131 million of that was invested at 230 sustaining capital projects across the state and they're critical for maintaining the network and a lot of those are projects like our seal storage remediation port shutdowns the mobile way bridges you know increasing in bulkhead height wall uh, the height of the bulkhead wall so you know there's a lot of a lot of things that are helping us stay in business but also increasing the volume of the network and there's also been 60 million on our scheduled maintenance um, including our preventive maintenance and monitoring equipment and breakdown and repairs and they're probably the three key areas of where the spend has been. And how much of a difference is that spend going to make to handling this season's crop? Enormous amount, and I think that's the critical uh, message here is, you know, the, the record spend in the network is imperative for us to continue to increase the volume in the supply chain to, you know, meet the targets that we've got out there and, you know, continue to help handle the, the large crops that we're, we're seeing coming at us. So it's, uh, you know, a real focus on making sure the supply chain rather than the network is, is focused on and, and we can increase the volumes that we, we move to port. CBH does plan to spend $4 billion on the network over the next 10 years. So does that mean another, you know, roughly $400 million will be spent on the supply chain next year? Correct. Yeah, that's that's where our planning is. And, you know, these are the sort of projects like these ones and also, like I said, more focus on supply chain with things like our rapid rail facilities and, you know, increasing the size of the rail fleets, uh, uh, some of the key projects that will enable us to increase the volumes that we move to port as well. So that $400 million that's going to be spent in the next 12 months, is that the money being transferred from marketing and trading profits to storage and handling? Oh, look, you know, we'll just continue to focus on the $400 million that we, we need to spend. You know, the the corporate side of that will we'll determine how that's all all managed, but you know we've always forecast the the need to spend the four hundred million, and and how we sort of get that will be left up to you know the the group to manage, and and we'll we'll continue to focus on what the projects we need to put in place, and and that uh, that capital that we we require for that. More recently, uh, just last month, CBH announced it acquired one hundred and five hectares in the Avon Industrial Park to secure the future of the Mina receival site for the increase in grain deliveries in the area. How much did that cost? Yeah, not not sure of the exact cost of that, but that's critical for us to make sure we maximise the use of the Avon facility. And one of the things we want to be able to do is transfer grain through Avon to increase our throughput down the Avon Valley down to the Quinana Terminal. So that's a critical part of that project to help us transition uh, Avon from a you know, what it is today to a transfer facility to allow us to, you know, get better use out of our narrow and 
standard gauge uh, train uh, setups that we've currently got. Roughly how much would it have cost, though? I mean, it's a big spend, isn't it? Oh, look, in the scheme of what we're trying to achieve, Belinda, I don't think it's a massive spend. I mean, we've yeah, paid, obviously, commercial rates for the land um, out of that uh, facility. Uh, it's a commercial park out there, and, yeah, we're able to sort of, yeah, as as per normal normal investments. And, and to be honest, I'm not sure of the exact cost of that at this stage. And, and what's the plan? Is this the, the additional bulkheads? Yeah, so that'll provide us the opportunity to put some storage out there to um, enable us to do some major capital works at Avon, uh, and that then you know gives us a uh, a facility with with you know good volumes around that Avon catchment area to receive the grain while we upgrade the Avon facility. Now the Minar site is one of eleven CBH sites to receive a portion of the two hundred million dollars of funds from state and federal governments through the. Agricultural Supply Chain Initiative. How much more government funding are you hoping, expecting to secure through this initiative? Yeah, look, we've got a number of projects that we've uh, we've been talking to government about, and the initial two hundred million dollars that we've got, um, you know, we, we want to uh, execute on that and you know demonstrate that we've got uh, those projects up and running, and and then you know we'll continue to provide government with with more projects as we go and. Like I said, there's a number of those, and they're all really important for us again to continue to uplift the volumes that we that we move to port. On the country, on the ABC, right across Western Australia, catching up this afternoon with Mick Dore. He's from the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, and just talking about the spend that's been invested in the supply chain and also just some of the the challenges for this season's harvest, which looks like a big one. It looks like around about 26 million tonnes, Mick. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, look, definitely uh, on track to, to you know be at least equal to last year. We've got uh, nine million tonne in the bin at the moment, and you know yesterday uh, we were just shy of our biggest day on record. So you know some really big uh, volumes of grain coming at us. Yeah, what what about the storage options then that you're thinking about? I mean, are you looking at maybe even grain bags? Uh, so we have done a, a bit of that around the state already, but again, we're focused on moving. You know, as many tons to port and, and shipping, and you know, we did a record month in November for shipping at you know just shy of 1.6 million ton, which is up 24% on a previous record for for November and December. Uh, we're lined up again to do some you know big numbers from a shipping point of view based on what we've historically done, and I think supporting that is our uh, our rail performance. And you know, we're seeing you know record tonnages moved. Um, I think in in November, we did just under 900,000 tonne of rail for November, which was a 20% increase on our previous record. So, you know, it's great to see those volumes moving and that supports the, you know, the receivables as well. It allows us to move tonnes out of, out, of, out of the way. Uh, speaking of the trains, the trains haven't been running in Geraldton for about two weeks. What pressure is that putting on the upcountry sites? Yeah, it hasn't quite been two weeks. It's... Uh, probably been uh, about a week it has has put some pressure up up country and you know that was part of an issue we have with some vessels up there so that's been sorted and we've got um, a good run of vessels coming up and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to turn that train on again soon and yeah definitely has had some impact on some of the sites and services um, in, in the Geraldton zone which again is you know one of the one of the things that we experienced last year as well was the pressure of the, the big crop does definitely have impacts on on services and particularly some of the smaller sites experience that uh, pretty early on in the harvest. And which sites are full? There's no sites completely full at the moment. There is services that are full, and we'll try and manage that as we, you know, get access back to the rail and how we how we work our way through that. So we're 
we're just in the process of doing that. Like I said, now that the the shipping uh, is easing congestion, in particularly in Geraldton, mm. that'll uh, that'll allow us then to start to work out how we manage our way through that so one. So all the sites are still open. They're not being uh, growers aren't being redirected to other sites further away. Oh, they are on on a service basis, Belinda. Yeah, so it's not necessarily the sites themselves. Um, I know Canner is is in starting to get very close to that, but we've got some plans to look at how we can manage that one. But there is there is services around the place that are full, um, particularly as as canola starts to come to a a close in certain parts of the state, particularly in the north, um, and we're starting to transition to wheat. That's that's impacting some sites. What what are the plans around Canna then? Yeah, we'd need to be able to look at how we can move move some tons out of there by rail and free up some space, or uh, you know growers will you know look at other options that we've got at, at sites near that. You know, so that's all part of the jigsaw puzzle that uh, that harvest is, and in, in how we sort of free up space and sort of work with growers to, to manage that as we as we go through the harvest. Are you looking at some more unconventional storage like, you know, football ovals or encouraging more on-farm storage? Uh, look, we've obviously encouraged on-farm storage. Like I said, we have uh, we have put some silo bags around the place, but, you know, ultimately we you know, will continue to work within within our supply chain. And, you know, like I said, we, we put another 2.2 million tonne of emergency storage in place for this harvest and hopefully that'll cater for that and, and again, you know, the improved rail performance is definitely helping as well um, to, to help us manage that. Mick Daw is with you. He's the Chief Operations Officer with the CBH Group and just looking at some of the logistics this season, getting this big crop off. Now Mick, this season CBH introduced the Quinana Port Initiative to try and attract 120,000 tonnes to the Metro Grain Centre and 15,000 tonnes to the Quinana Grain Terminal. This is of new season canola, GM and non-GM, directly from growers early in the harvest period. So how's that going? Going really well, and that's another another one of the ones that we've actually uh, turned off given that we're at the sort of back end of the, the season. So we've, we haven't quite hit those tonnages, but we have definitely seen uh, an increase in the volume of tonnes moved down to MGC and, and subsequently railed down to Quinana. What's the current carryover? Look, that continues to come down. So we'd be uh, around two and a half million tonne, I think, at the moment is our current carry thereabouts. I don't have an exact figure, but it's definitely come down a lot. Um, November has allowed us to move a lot more than what we had originally uh, scheduled, given the slower start to harvest. And there have, uh, you'd be aware, that a series of rain events in some of the southern zones. What are the plans there as far as you know segregation for that weather-affected grain? The southern part of the state is uh, is just cranking up particularly on cereals and, and we are seeing some quality issues and working with growers on segregations with with a number of those concerns. Um, unfortunately, the, the forecast doesn't look overly promising for the next, uh, in, in about a week's time. So hopefully that sorts itself out. But yeah, again, working with growers and, and those those parts of the state with services and, and sort of adding extra or, or new segregations where we need to to help cater for that. And so I think you said you've got about, what is it, 9 million tonnes delivered at this point. Is that right, Mick? That's right, yeah. So as of this morning, we're just over 9 million tonnes. And how are you tracking at this point? It's uh, tracking pretty well. Like I said, it'd be we're probably a couple of weeks behind where we were at the same point last year, given the, the weather. Uh, the northern part of the state is, is going extremely well. They're not being held up by weather, but the southern part is, is, is a little bit behind and we're just starting to see some good, good volume. So yesterday we were just shy of our all-time record receivals and like I said, the a lot of the sites weren't at maximum capacity 
yet. So we uh, we expect to see some really good volumes come in in the next three or four days, and you know that's six hundred thousand ton a day. So the the number will lift uh, from nine million pretty quickly um, up to fifteen million ton in the next week or so. Good to talk to you, Mick. Thank you so much for the update. No worries. Cheers, Belinda. Mick Dore, he is the CBH Group's Chief Operations Officer. It is 25 past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. Uh, shortly, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, checking conditions right around the state this afternoon, into the weekend, into the start of the new week. Uh, Danny Burkett with the Wool Market Report. And a reminder too, the Mount Barker Cattle Market uh, details are going to be on uh, Friday's Country Hour. Well, from today onwards, just because it's gone into that two-day format, it's usually just the one day on the Thursday. But as of this week, it started the two-day format. So uh, Tracy Kilner along with the details of that too, just before going through the Wool Market details. 26 past 12. And the softening of China's COVID zero policy is tipped to be good news for WA's iron ore industry. China appears to be relaxing strict COVID restrictions in some major cities following protests earlier in the week. The iron ore price has already jumped 25% over the last month on the back of speculation the country may open up. Analyst Gavin Went says the outlook for the commodity is looking strong. It is virtually all China that has uh, contributed to this market optimism and subsequent rebound in price from below $80 per tonne to currently above $100 per tonne. And basically iron ore can be viewed as, a, I guess, a, a, an option, a call option on the health not only of China's economy, but particularly its construction industry. China is the biggest consumer of iron ore in the world by far, and most of that iron ore goes into its construction industry. And you can chart the progress, both upwards and downwards, of iron ore pretty much in direct correlation with the health of its construction industry. There are some big problems, of course, over the last 12 months that have emerged with China's construction sector, mainly due to defaults on the extraordinarily high levels of debt uh, that are present within the construction sector. So China's authorities took a deliberate step to try and cool the construction sector. And by, I guess, association, uh, it cooled the steel industry and, of course, the iron ore price. So iron ore prices had fallen. Markets, however, are getting more optimistic with respect to the outlook for China. There's a lot of pressure on Chinese authorities on two fronts. One, to ease the, the restrictions, and secondly, to get the economy going again. And typically what we tend to see is China's authorities stimulating their construction sector. So that's what markets are getting excited about. Right. So are you expecting these prices will continue to rise, the iron ore price? It's very difficult to predict uh, what's going to happen with the iron ore price. But if markets are optimistic with respect to China and there is the very strong possibility that China will open up and there is that pressure on China to open up and also to get its economy going once again, you'd have to think that there is more upside in the iron ore price. And I think the, the $100 per tonne price level is a very important psychological level. And now that we've seen prices hopefully consolidating it around that level, we'll start to see prices increase further. The other important thing to bear in mind about China is typically this time of the year, November, December, is a time when seasonally 
it restocks. So it comes into the marketplace and purchases more iron ore because uh, it needs that iron ore as we head into the new calendar year. So seasonally, it's a time when China comes into the market, purchases and basically gets ready for industry to crank up in the first quarter of the of the coming year. So it wouldn't be a surprise to see Chinese buyers coming back into the marketplace once again, which would also add to optimism with respect to the iron ore price. And have we seen this reflected in the share prices of iron ore companies? Certainly the, the major miners, we've seen certainly a recovery in share prices, uh, BHP, Rio Tinto, but we've seen share price recoveries in all of the other major iron ore miners and and smaller miners as well. I mean, Fortescue is still pumping out very, very strong dividends uh, to compensate shareholders, even though its share price, along with the other major iron ore miners, had been easing over the last six to nine months. But we have definitely seen a turnaround uh, with respect to the, the major iron ore miners. And remember with BHP and Rio Tinto, as much as they talk about expanding and diversifying into other commodities, particularly things like copper and other battery materials, iron ore is still firing away their biggest earnings driver. MineLife Senior Resource Analyst Gavin Went speaking to Steph Sinclair about the recent jump in the iron ore price, the price sitting at 103 US dollars per tonne this morning. It is half past 12 here on the Country Hour and off to the Bureau of Meteorology very soon. First, a court has handed down the largest fine in Australian history to a labour hire firm for breaching licensing rules. The Supreme Court of Victoria issued fines of more than $386,000 to UNG Services and $96,000 to the company's director, Nico Keat, after the firm's licence to operate was cancelled for trying to circumvent labour laws. Victorian Labour Hire Commissioner Steve Dragavel hopes the punishment will motivate other labour hire companies to look after workers. The director applied for a labour hire licence. He wasn't a fit and proper person. Um, He had a number of serious convictions. Uh, He was refused a licence. Another gentleman applied for a licence, obtained a licence, and then the first gentleman popped himself uh, on as the sole director of the second business. So it was an attempt to circumvent the checks that are there to protect vulnerable workers. The authority took the view that that kind of attempt to avoid uh, protection of workers was uh, not right, and we took the matter to court and the judge awarded significant penalties for the attempted avoidance of the licensing scheme. Do you know what type of of produce or work that this particular company was engaged in either harvesting or or working in? Uh, The business was supplying uh, workers or seeking to supply workers in the Arrow Valley and um, is no longer operating. Over $386,000 of fines to the company, $96,000 in fines to the individual. What does that judgment say about the the strengthening of of laws to licence labour hire in the state? What the judgment says to business is that if you're trying to circumvent the rules and trying to get around the rules and uh, do the wrong thing, you will be found out and you'll pay a very heavy price, not just for your business, but for you personally. And that uh, the consequence of trying to dodge the law at the expense of vulnerable workers will cost you dearly. This is the biggest fine for, for this kind of offence in the, in the history of Victoria, is that right? 
It's the biggest fine for this type of offence in the history of Australia. So I think we can take from that that the authority takes a very dim view of businesses and people who are trying to avoid the scheme that's there to protect vulnerable workers. Of course, people trying to do the right thing can be reassured that if they're being undercut by people trying to dodge the scheme, uh, there to protect vulnerable workers, that uh, there are very significant penalties that can be applied and will be applied. And I suppose as a result of a judgment like this, what is your advice to to farmers and other businesses that use labour hire companies uh, that are operating in the state? Well, uh, the advice is remains the same, which is please make sure you're using licensed labour hire providers and make sure that everyone in the supply chain is licensed. So if you've got a subby or a, a subby of a subby on your site and you're not quite sure, try and find out because um, it is your obligation to make sure that you're dealing with businesses that are, are operating in accordance with the law. And that's to make sure we've got a level playing field, make sure that the work, workforce is being treated properly and we've got a sustainable industry. Is this a one-off type of judgment or are there other or similar cases that are currently being brought before the courts? There are other cases that are in the process of being brought before the courts and uh, we strongly prefer that people like this gentleman did not try and circumvent the law and, and that there wasn't a need for prosecution. But, of course, um, there is a need and we have a number of cases to bring before the courts in the next little while. Victorian Labor Hire Commissioner Steve Dragavel speaking to Warwick Long about Victoria's Supreme Court handing down the largest fine in Australian history to a labour hire firm and its director for breaching licensing rules. It is 26 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Still to come, you are going to go off and pack some baby zucchinis very shortly here in the southwest of the state. And also a couple of markets for you, the details of the Mount Barker two-day cattle market and all the details from the wool market. First, though, Luke Huntington from the Bureau of Meteorology is here now. Luke, how's it looking around the southwest land division this afternoon? Yeah, over the southwest land division, it's looking pretty quiet today. There's a weak, weak ridge just to the southwest of the state at the moment, so it's keeping um, most areas generally clear. There's just a little bit of cloud along the uh, the south coast and the lower west coast, but that's gradually clearing now. And uh, yeah, still warm temperatures inland though. We're seeing um, through the wheat belt and uh, through parts of the Great Southern, in, still in in the low to mid 30s. But the cool change has come through sort of the Esperance area. So down in that area, we're only expecting low 20 degree temperatures and much of the West Coast, we're expecting around mid-20 degree temperatures. Um, and then heading into tomorrow, we do see a uh, trough start to develop um, through inland parts of the Southwest Land Division. So we'll probably see a return of thunderstorms through eastern parts of the Wheat Belt and into far northeastern parts of the Great Southern. Those thunderstorms, uh, if they do form, will not have any um, significant rainfall associated with them. So um, mostly dry thunderstorms, so um, dry lightning is a risk uh, through that area tomorrow afternoon and into the evening. Um, and another feature for tomorrow is that we do have a weak cold front just brushing the far southwestern coast. So we'll see um, some light showers or drizzle um, just in that far southwestern corner, pretty much southwest of around uh, Bustleton to Albany uh, during the daytime. And then as we head into Sunday, uh, those showers will clear out of the southwest uh, area 
and we'll see a continuation of thunderstorms um, through the eastern parts of the Wheat Belt and the northeastern Great Southern. But we'll also see some um, showers and thunderstorms over the southeastern coastal district as well, so around the Esperance area. Uh, there may be a little bit more rainfall associated with um, showers and storms through that Esperance area, maybe around sort of one to five millimetres, but on the most part, uh, little to no rainfall expected. Um, and then we'll see on Monday um, the trough starts to deepen um, through parts of the uh, in, uh, parts of the southwest land division. So again, pretty similar conditions to the weekend. Some some isolated thunderstorms and showers coming back a little bit further west through the central wheat belt and the northeastern parts of the Great Southern. But again, they're pretty high base with little to no rainfall. And then on the Tuesday. A, a, pretty much a stagnant pattern once again. So a similar area for the showers and thunderstorms, uh, but little to no rainfall associated with them. And what can you see for northern and eastern parts? Yeah, for the uh, the northern parts uh, today, we're seeing some showers and thunderstorms over the northern gold fields, western interior, uh, and into the northeastern Gascoigne. But again, they're high base with little to no rainfall. Uh, a similar area again tomorrow uh, through that far southeastern Pilbara into the uh, western gold fields, into the northeastern Gascoigne um, with some high base thunderstorms. And uh, heading into Sunday, we will see. Um, probably an expansion of the area of thunderstorms just as a trough deepens through the area. So extending right, pretty much right throughout the south interior uh, into eastern parts of the Gascoigne, through the Goldfields region and down into the Eucla, uh, but remaining um, generally clear throughout um, the Pilbara and the Kimberley, although it does get uh, pretty hot through parts of the inland Pilbara on the Sunday period. Um, temperatures getting up to around 44 or 45 degrees. So um, we do have some heatwave conditions uh, coming through that area for the next few days. And heading into early next week, uh, we see the sort of those hot conditions persisting right through the inland Pilbara uh, into the north interior and into the southern Kimberley. So heatwave conditions persisting through there. Um, the only area of thunderstorms through the Pilbara and Kimberley would be just be on the Tuesday period where we do see thunderstorms return to that northwestern Kimberley. Um, and then thunderstorms do continue still over the Eucla and the interior goldfields region early next week. And then the warnings for this afternoon. Yeah, so we've got a heatwave warning current for the south interior, uh, a fire weather warning for the Burrup fire weather district, which is just near Karatha. And we do have a, a strong wind warning for the Perth local waters and Bunbury coast. Thank you so much for that, Luke. It is 21 to 1 and checking the rainfall figures now. So we'll look back at the last 24 hours from 9 o'clock this, uh, yesterday morning up until 9 o'clock this morning. And not much about. The only ones over five mils, Country Downs in the Kimberley had eight. And then Lorna, Ge- Lorna Glen in the interior had six. And that's pretty much it. 20 to 1. And speaking of the rain, it appears that the floodwaters may have finally peaked at Mullamine in New South Wales, many weeks after torrential rains caused the worst flooding for more than 100 years. But there's no rest in sight for those battling the waters, which will take weeks to recede. Mullamine is in the Riverina, so that's about 850 kilometres southwest of Sydney. China Gibson farms on Billabong Creek, just upstream of Mullamine, and says without stating the obvious... He's never seen anything like it. Um, some of the one of the houses is right on the creek's edge, so there's no levee. 
Um, we lost one house on a little hobby farm south of Moolamine. That went through the house. Poor old girl, she's uh, got in her kitchen. But there's a lot of, fair few of the outskirts, little hobby farms where there's water under the houses now. I haven't heard of any in the houses except for just out of town. There's a lot of blokes having a battle. They're just 24-7 every two hours. They get up, check their pumps. They're just, they're getting flood, flood fatigue, I call it. <laughs> they're getting cranky and tired. Well, fair enough. I mean, you're, you're quite a few weeks into it, aren't you? Oh, this mate's been, he's been, we started sandbagging his place over about a month and a half ago, just out of precaution. And we've just been building it ever since. He hasn't got a levee between him and the creek. His, his house is on the creek's edge, which is a great place to live, but not good when you've got record floods. He's kept it out so far, kept it from going under his house and over his little block. There's levee banks, there's sandbags, there's everything. Whatever they can throw at it, they're all trying. Uh, just plenty of man hours. The, um, the RFS, our local RFS station, the rural, rural fire service, is sort of running the show with their head honchos and they've got volunteers coming from Western Australia, Sydney, everywhere around the state and interstate. And now the SES is starting to turn up in town. They've been busy elsewhere, but they're in town now. Jider, I understand that they're being well looked after with some some classic country cooking. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do some notes every week. I just said, just put out there, like, if you want to help these volunteers, they're living away from home, they're all volunteers. Just drop some... Uh, Cakes were sliced in on them and getting pretty well fed by a local cook. So well done to everyone that threw something up and took it down to our volunteers because if you've been lumping sandbags all day, you're really looking for a good smoker. Chanda Gibson, who farms upstream of Mullamine in the New South Wales Riverina, and he was catching up with Angus Verley, 18 to 1. Well, it sounds like the spring weather in Western Australia's Great Southern Region has been ideal for growing zucchinis. Stephen Piazzan farms on the outskirts of Albany near the south coast and says his zucchinis are growing so fast his team is struggling to pick when they're ready. I'm currently packing courgettes for Perth. Courgettes are basically baby zucchinis and we send them to Perth twice a week. So far it's been good. We planted some early ones and this is the first, like they're really flushing at the moment so it's nice to finally get some get some good weather and so they're growing really well at the moment I just got to try to stay on top of picking them they grow that fast. So what sort of things worked in your favour this year with the zucchinis? Probably the even though it was a bit of a cold start to the year it probably helped because I didn't have to irrigate as much and it was sort of a nice gentle start and then now it's sort of it's cranking so it gave me a chance to get organised and start picking them. Have you ever been this busy with picking zucchinis before? Not with picking zucchinis. I've been busy with picking other things, but um, no, this is... I've done this for just, just for our local restaurants and retail customers before, but sending them to Perth, um, sort of the wholesale market, is a bit of a new market for me, so I'm, I'm learning the ropes and trying to do the best I can. And why have you decided to send your produce to wholesale markets in Perth? Well, I do sell to a lot of restaurants locally in Albany, which, which are fantastic to work with. Because of the labour shortages around, they are only taking about a third of what they used to take. So it's a combination of that and also just to create um, additional income so that I can keep, keep things getting planted and we'll have crops right up until the start of winter. What does Perth want from you with your zucchinis? Describe to me what sort of type they're looking for. 
Okay, so I grow two types of zucchini. So the normal green one that everyone looks for. So zucchinis are the large zucchinis that everyone thinks of when they, when they grow them in the garden. Courgettes are the baby ones. So you just pick them at a younger stage. Ideally, they want them about 13 centimetres long, so quite small. And that's the, you get the best prices for those. I also grow another variety that's a light green colour. They're a bit, a bit shorter and, and a bit stockier. They're popular with Lebanese restaurants and um, Egyptian restaurants in Perth. And they want them about 10 to 12 centimetres. Is it a bit of an effort to get these baby zucchinis off in time before they get too big? It can be, it really can be. Especially if, if the weather's a bit cool and overcast, it's um, pick about three times a week. But honestly, if, if it's hot and sunny, they can just almost double in size in a day, you know. So it can be a bit of a challenge, but um, it's worth it. And have you had issues with zucchinis growing too fast? The issue normally isn't them growing too fast, it's more me keeping up with picking them. <laughs> so I did have to, um, a few got away from me, so I had to have a big, a big clean up and, and cut the big ones off the bushes so that the um, young ones could keep growing. So that was last week. So now, now they're all happy again and growing away. And what about your other veggies? You've got quite an abundance out here. Have they had positives, negatives with the weather that's been experienced this year? Yeah. The early tomatoes have a bit of black spot, so that's not great. But saying that they do look very healthy, so often they shake it off uh, with the hotter weather. And yeah, everything else just just looks good. I'm really happy with everything this season. I've got more capsicums that I've got to try get in the ground, but apart from that, everything's on par and and um, looking good. Vegetable grower Stephen Piazzan speaking to Sophie Johnson about the zucchini season, which has just started, and he farms Alica, which is around about mm, sort of 15 kilometres west of Albany. 13 to 1 and a few markets to get through today, the wool market details and the Mount Barker cattle market. Uh, that's to come here on the Country Hour. First, though, robotics, glasshouses, polytunnels, waste and energy costs are all being discussed at a Future of Food Summit that's underway in Brisbane this week. Professor Cordelia Salamalia is head of the Future Food Systems Cooperative Research Centre and she says they've been discussing ideas for more sustainable food systems. So it is important to bring all these people together because we can showcase some of the projects that we currently have, but also show the strength and also the need for partnership between all these different stakeholders. Talk me through some of those challenges. Climate change, a very big one. So we have seen, for example, a lot of the impact that we have with our food prices, with just the weather events that we currently have um, in Australia. And, and climate change is, of course, uh, is going to be very disruptive even now. And that means that we have to be more resilient with regard to our food supply and how we grow food. One of our team in the Future Food System CRC is looking at protected cropping. So looking at developing smart technology that are suited for the Australian climates uh, that we can use to perhaps uh, secure our food supply with regard to all the changes that happen with the climate. That would be challenging in itself because the electricity costs of that, the other challenges that protected cropping bring with 
pests and diseases that love that warm, humid climate, climate inside the greenhouse? Yes, and this is the reason why uh, we are bringing uh, even scientists that come from different backgrounds, not just the plant scientists, but we're bringing uh, engineering, we, we're bringing computer scientists and uh, visual uh, people who work in visual imaging. Because, for example, one of the research projects that we are currently supporting, looking at how we can develop uh, visual imaging with machine learning to identify the pests and, and also some of the potential disruptor to this indoor cropping uh, environment. Uh, we also work with a project uh, that look at sensors that can be put into glass houses to monitor the humidity, the temperature, so that it can run much more effi- uh, efficiently without having to have people being there all the time. And of course, automated cropping uh, with uh, robotic solution and, and also other things that we can do. Uh, with regard to energy, one of the projects that we are working on looking at implementing smart glass or smart film. So essentially, it's a passive uh, solution with regard to controlling the light environment without uh, additional energy, but to maximize that so that we can um, have a much better growing environment for the crop inside the glass houses. So if you are painting a picture of what this future world looks like, how does it gel in your mind? I guess it will be quite different from what we have now. Um, and, 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 and the reason why I say that is because we have seen that um, obviously uh, the popularity of all these different sources of protein that are currently um, uh, becoming much more popular. That's, insects, for example? That's right. And, and insect, plant protein, and also other sources, uh, algae and, and so on. Um, and I think that is exciting because it will give us even more complementary protein sources, um, not just the traditional animal protein. And also from the Australian perspective, we have so much opportunity to develop more of our product into much added value product. So the talk that we just heard um, just now talking about how we can add value to some of the traditional um, plant and and, uh, sources of protein that we have in Australia so that we can turn it into uh, added value product that also can go for export. So that will be something that we would like to see and support through the CRC. Professor Cordelia Selamalia, the Research and Commercialisation Director of Future Food Systems Cooperative Research Centre. And she was talking to Jennifer Nichols at the Future of Food Summit that is being held in Brisbane this week. Nine minutes to one. G'day, this is Hamish McTaggart from Vigimire Station and this is the Country Hour on the ABC. Tomorrow is International Day of People with Disability. But throughout next week, you're going to be hearing some really inspiring stories from people with all sorts of disabilities. People working in primary industries, so on farms and also in the fishing and the mining industries. For example, on Monday, Kent Rochester is going to share his story with you. Just over 20 years ago, Kent was involved in an incident on a vineyard that left him a quadriplegic. But he now runs a successful cattle operation in WA's Great Southern Region. I think I'm, I think I'm pretty lucky and pretty happy with how it's all come to be and family and farm and, and life that I've been able to, to have since then. It was probably a lot better than, than what 
my initial sort of um, outlook was it didn't look real great for a little bit so um, and it was pretty hard to imagine things being good but finished up being pretty pretty great. I really want you to be part of that feature week, well, you know, featuring these sort of stories throughout the week next week on the Country Hour because uh, not only are you going to hear from some inspirational people with different disabilities, you're also going to hear from companies that employ them and from an organisation that matches up disabled job seekers with employers who are keen to find these workers. And there is a shortage of workers, as you know, across well, just about every industry at the moment. So this could be a way of being more inclusive at your workplace and also finding some pretty incredible people that you can put on the payroll. So be part of that next week here on the Country Hour. It is seven minutes to one o'clock. And now to the markets. The wool market in just a moment or two. First to Mount Barker. Now, the Mount Barker cattle market, you know, it's usually a one-day sale, but this week it's gone into its two-day phase and it's going to stay that way for a little while. Tracy Kilner is at today's sale. Hi, Tracy. How did the two sales go? Um, yesterday's weaner sale, we had 1,535 head of excellent quality calves and today we had 270 head for our um, trade sale. So I'll start with yesterday's. The yarding was domina- dominated by heavy steer calves with local and eastern states feedlot buyers operating on this category. The prices trended down with the numbers on offer with weights over 380 kilos topping at 436 cents and lightweight calves sold to a top of 630 cents a kilo. Heifer categories trended down as well with a pen topping the females at 510 cents a kilo. Weaner steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 380 to 436 cents. Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos sold from 432 to 534 cents. The lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos made 460 to 586 cents. And weights under 280 kilos returned 482 to 630 cents a kilo. Weaner heifers weighing over 380 kilos made from 320 to 460 cents. Weights from 330 to 380 kilos sold from 370 to 458 cents. Lighter weights between 280 and 330 kilos made 350 to 510 cents and weights under 280 kilos returned 330 to 472 cents, averaging 420 cents a kilo. The trade sale, the yarding was dominated by trade weight cattle followed by cows with both categories trending up with demand. Heavy bulls eased with limited competition. The grown steers weighing 600 to 750 kilos sold for 340 to 390 cents. Under 600 kilo weights made from 370 to 406 cents. And between 400 and 500 kilo steers made 380 to 410 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos made from 310 to 378 cents. And the heavier weight heifers gained 20 cents making 322 to 340 cents a kilo. Heavy cows gained 20 cents selling for 200 to 298 cents. While young medium weight cows to feeders sold for 254 to 290 cents a kilo. Store cows returned 194 to 220 cents with restocker interest. Heavy bulls east 30 cents selling from 100 to 254 cents to processors. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for going through those details at Mount Barker today and also the results from yesterday. Four minutes to one. As you heard earlier in the hour, the wool market is down this week. The eastern market indicator is down 32 cents to close at 1,224 cents a kilogram clean. 
And the Western market indicator is down 38 cents, closing at 1,370 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, what do you make of this week's results? Yeah, we had falls in all three centres, Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle, all fell this week. If we look at the Fremantle market, we had 18 microns fell 70 clean to close at 16.90. 19 microns, 1,500 flat on the close. That was off 30 for the week. 20 microns off 40. 13.80 on the finish. 21s and 22s, 1,300, 12.55. They were off 30 and 25. Pieces and bellies followed the fleece wool on the fine end of 50, medium types of 20. That was regardless of seed fault. If we look at lock stones, crutchings in the oddment markets, fully firm over the two days. Lamb's wool, in particular those carrying 0.1, 0.2, very firm in the market. But discounts are starting to increase for the VM as you go past 0.2. Who was buying this week? It was good to see a good uh, spread of buyers again. Endeavour Wool Exports this week, 16% of the Merino fleece wool across the country. TNU, 13%. Tech Wool, 12%. And fourth place, Morris Wools, a West Australian-based business, 10%. Also, TNU, very strong in the skirtings. And also, we had Tech Wool strong in the oddments. So a good spread of buyers, but the same buyers we've seen week in, week out. However, good to see Endeavour Wool Exports come and take that top spot. And for next week, how many bales? I think with the uh, with the uh, conditions in the eastern states improving, we're now starting to see wool come onto the market. We're just shy of 45,000 bales uh, for the week. That's Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle. Melbourne is a three-day sale. So I'd suggest, just given what's happening in the market, we've been around that 35,000 bale mark being cleared to the trade. 45,000 bales will definitely test the wool market. Thanks for that, Danny. Easy. Danny Burkett going through this week's wool market. It is two to one here on the Country Hour. And earlier in the hour, you heard from Mick Dorr, who is the state's main grain handlers, CBH Group's chief operations officer. And he was just going through the spend on the supply chain network over the last 12 months to the end of September. And the co-op has spent a record $348 million on the network in the last 12 months. And a similar sort of spend for next year, well, basically the next 10 years, around about $400 million each year for the next 10 years to try and bring that supply chain up to scratch. And I was asking Mick about how uh, the next $400 million, where that's going to come from and whether that's going to be transferred from marketing and trading to the supply chain network, which has been discussed by the co-op before. In response to that, uh, this through on the text, why is Mick dodging the financial question? Growers know where the dollars are coming from. Just be more transparent. After all, it is our cooperative. That said, CBH has dropped the ball. But what can we do as a community of growers to assist the rapid movement of CBH to be able to move more tonnes for shipping? Lobbying state government? Maybe. Thank you for that text. And just on grain, I was just looking at the ABC Rural homepage and it looks like South Australia is on track for a record grain harvest of its own. I mean, here in WA, we're on track for about 24, 26 million tonnes. South Australia heading for a record, too, of 12.1 million tonnes, beating the previous record of 11.1 million set in back in 2016-17. Great to talk to you today. Time for the news, one o'clock.